to be in Daniel chapter 6, if you want to go ahead and open up there. And um, I think this is, there's a lot of text here. And so I'm going to read through it, but I'm going to read through it relatively quickly. Uh, it's also on the screen. I see my son's pointing out to me. But before we read, uh, I, I, I want to set the table a little bit. So normally I think we might read and then pray and then do an introduction. I'm going to do it a little bit backwards. So bear with me if you don't mind. This book, the book of Daniel, is really amazing for lots of reasons. And I think, I think you've probably been able to see this happen over the last few weeks as we've studied the book of Daniel. But it's a really cool story, a true story, about what God did in the ancient world and about how he raised up kingdoms and brought down kingdoms and preserved his people. And in some cases, saved his people in uh, amazing and extraordinary ways. But you read a book like that, and, and there are so many of these stories about uh, what God did. And sometimes, instead of talking about the real hero of the story, we, you know, it's called the book of Daniel. And uh, we think about Daniel, and we get excited about Daniel, and there's the old kid's song, Dare to Be a Daniel. And, I mean, you know, that's all well and good. But the hero, clearly, in the book of Daniel, is God himself. And, and this is a book that is intended to tell us what kind of God it is that we have to serve, that, that we uh, work with, that we know who, who loves us, who has intervened in human history. And over and over and over again in, in this book, in Daniel, we see uh, this theme of the sovereignty of God that God is in control and that God is ruling and reigning over the affairs of men. And he's the one who ultimately is in charge and is directing things in, in the way that he chooses. And it's so shocking the way that some of this comes across because there are these stories about foreign kings, kings that did not serve the one true God, like Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, one that we're going to talk about today, Darius. And then later on, others. And these kings, they were known as great warriors and great men. And they were worshipped by the people. And yet, God humbles them. Just, just like we learned in that story about Nebuchadnezzar. God had humbled him so much that Nebuchadnezzar would say... Um, how great are his signs, talking about God back in chapter 4, how great are his signs and how mighty his works. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's Nebuchadnezzar saying that. He would go on and say later, um, That uh, at the end of chapter 4, his dominion, again, is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now this is a king who, who was over a kingdom that would just wipe out people's identity and wipe out their culture because he wanted to be seen as absolute power 
And here this guy is saying about God, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's pretty amazing. I know I'm preaching somebody else's sermon because we've already studied that chapter. But this is, this is the overarching theme that you see again and again and again, all the way back in chapter 2. In verse 21, the scripture says he changes, and this is again Nebuchadnezzar, he, he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings, and, or this was about him. He, he, he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. This is, this is God's book over and over and over again. And this is God who is the hero. This is God who is in control. This is God on display. And our story today is about another king that came later. And, and, and you all know last week we had this story of Belshazzar who saw the writing on the wall and he was deposed of his kingdom. And at the very end of chapter 5, the very last verse, it says that same night Belshazzar the Chaldean was slain. And so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. So we, we literally see the raising up of kings and the tearing down of kings. But just just one last thing to think about here. Daniel, the writer of the book, the one chronicling these events, and the people of God, as they received the scriptures, did not flinch at the reality that God was the one that was in control when Israel and Judah fell. When Israel and Judah were taken into captivity by the Babylonians and others, they did not flinch to believe and to accept the reality that God was sovereign even over the fall of their own nation. This is it's a remarkable worldview. But it very clearly begins, and I believe this is the biblical worldview. This is the worldview we should adopt as Christians. It begins with God on the throne and man, mankind, humanity below God. This shouldn't be a controversial statement. It shouldn't be a, a shocking statement. It shouldn't be uh, anything that blows our minds. But it might be mind-blowing that the Bible teaches that God is the most important being in the universe. In a culture like ours and others, we're not unique in this regard, but we certainly have uh, expressions of this happening in our culture these days. In a culture where we want to begin with the premise that we are the most important thing in the universe. Or what we think, or what we want, or what we think is fair. This comes as a, a shock to us. Because here God is on the throne of history, raising kings taking down kings, raising kingdoms, bringing down kingdoms, shifting people into a dispersion, bringing them back, delivering them, but allowing all kinds of things to happen that we think, well, that, how does God do that? Well, well, he's God. He sits on the throne. He rules over history. That's what he get to, gets to do. So here we are, another such story. I just think these are important things to consider. So, all of that to get to Daniel chapter 6. I know you wanted to get there, so we're there. And uh, I'm going to read from ESV. That's what's on the screen here. 
So um, I'm going to go quickly, and I'll just stop and make a few comments while I read, because I think there are a few things that are worth noticing. Again, so Nebuchadnezzar was gone. Another king had replaced him. That king had been swept away in chapter 5 with this handwriting on the wall episode. And we see a new people coming in and kind of taking over this kingdom. And the Medes and the Persians become the next great kingdom that kind of sweep away the Babylonians. And Darius the Mede is one of these. He's one of these Medes, the scripture says. And he becomes the king. And this is what it says about him and the way that he governs. That's where we pick up in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. What on earth is a satrap? Uh, a satrap is like a, like a regional governor or maybe like a mayor. Like a, a regional governor is, I think, a helpful term. So Darius sets over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one. So here Daniel is again near the throne of power to be a witness to history. And uh, you think about it, like we see Daniel as a hero here, but just how rich are we because we had a front row seat to this part of world history? If Daniel had not been in that position, we would not have this front row seat to this episode. But uh, Daniel actually is one of the three high officials that governs over the 120 satraps. So apparently uh, their system of government works something like this. So you had Darius, who was the, the king. And then you had these three high magistrates or high officials or whatever you want to call them. And those three, I guess, scripture doesn't exactly say it like this, but I guess those three divided up the 120 satraps and the satraps reported to them. So you had kind of an organizational structure that works like that. But even among those, verse 3 tells us, Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Again, a, a remarkable picture of the sovereignty of God here because God is going to persuade because of the excellency of Daniel's spirit, God persuades him that this is a guy that needs to be in charge of everything. So Daniel's about to be set in charge of the whole kingdom. Then the high officials, verse 4, and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Because they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men... Then these men said, uh, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so Daniel had lived a publicly blameless life. Daniel had conducted himself in business with integrity. And everyone knew that, look, you're not going to find anything on this guy. The only way that you're going to find dirt on Daniel is if it has to do with the worship of his God because that conflicts with this, this ruler's ego. Rulers don't like God to be on the throne. They, they want themselves to be on the throne. And so uh, they come up with a plan. They hatch a plan to get Daniel. And I, I can't possibly read 
the text in the Weasley voice that it deserves to be read. But I imagine, you know, that this story would be uh, so much better if you read the satraps in the voice that they should have, which is that of a very Weasley person. <clears throat> but the verse 6 says, The high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they said, O king, Darius, live forever. Apparently this is a greeting they do. Where they say, but they say the name of the king, they would say, live forever, because this comes up later. So this is a, you know, maybe this is long live the king kind of language. But they say, uh, King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdoms, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should, be a, should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, should be cast into the den of lions. Now, think about this. I, I, I know that there must have been some presentation skill involved. I say that they must have had a weaselly voice. But these guys are not dumb. Because they were perceptive enough to know that Daniel had the king's ear. They were perceptive enough to know that they, they weren't going to be able to come up with dirt on Daniel uh, that, that would get him in trouble. And so what do they do? They come up with a way to appeal to, to Darius's ego and they're like, hey, you know what? We've all agreed. This sounds like a great idea. To show you the deference and respect that you deserve, maybe because you're the new king, maybe because we're trying to suppress any remaining rebellion. Who knows? There was some salesmanship here. This is a summary of their presentation. But I'm sure there was more salesmanship than this. But they basically make this case that, uh, Darius, you need to pass this ordinance so that no one can pray or ask anything other than you for the next little while. This reminds me of the, of, of the story about Fidel Castro. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a fan of Fidel Castro. Not a fan of communism. When, when Castro first came to power, he gathered a group of school children and said to the school children, um, I want to teach you a lesson about the world. And asked them if they believed in God. And uh, some of them said, well, yeah, we do. And he said, I want you to ask God for ice cream. Just ask him. Let's pray. Let's see if he gives you ice cream. And uh, so they prayed. And there was no ice cream. And he said, no. Ask Fidel <laughs> for ice cream. And they said, can we have some ice cream? And he got out loads of ice cream for these children to teach them that he was their God. He was the one to whom they make their requests. He was the one that would be the answer to their prayers. This is what totalitarians do. This is what dictators do. This is what people who have absolute power over others in government, they do this kind of thing. And so this is, the, this is the world they lived in, and this is what Darius probably wanted. This was the kind of power. This is the kind of power most rulers want. And so when they come and they make this presentation, you need to make a law that says nobody asks God for ice cream, just you, Darius. 
You need to make a law that nobody appeals to any other ruler, even in heaven, except you. And I think there was probably some flattery here as well. You know, there must have been among these satraps people that were holdovers from Babylonian government. There must have been. Daniel was a holdover from the Babylonian government. So there must have been others that were holdovers. And they, they say, well, you know, the, the Medes and the Persians, they have laws that when they get passed, they can never be re re repealed. They can never be repealed. And so they, they say, uh, verse 8, King, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. They were appealing to his authority. They were appealing to this fact that you're a new king over a new kingdom. We want to say the reign of the Babylonians is over once and for all. This, this is a new day. This is a new kingdom. This is a new kind of leadership. Be it known to everyone. No more appeals to the former administration. You come to me now. And uh, he did it. So therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Now here's the thing. When they made this case and they made this presentation to Darius, they didn't bring out front the fact that this was going to rub up against Daniel's religious beliefs. They didn't bring out the fact that while, uh, yeah, this would establish you as absolute authority in the kingdom, it also is going to treat people horribly with regards to their religion and other things. They didn't bring that up. They just appealed to the ego. And Darius was surprised, I think, to learn what happened next. But let's, let's not kid ourselves. These guys had a plan. Their plan was to catch Daniel, to use the law against Daniel, and to have Daniel killed. Not because Daniel had done anything wrong, but because they were jealous and they wanted his power. Now this is the world that I live in right now, isn't it? This is our world too. This is not, uh, this is not just the ancient world. This is the way it works today. There are still people in society today that will appeal to government to punish their enemies. There are still people doing these very kinds of, I mean, you could, like, if I wanted to, and I don't, actually, but if I wanted to, I could probably cite a bunch of newspaper articles from political things happening right now where people are trying to use the power of government to punish their enemies. Or in wrangling for power, they set up traps for folks that aren't fair. But let's not kid ourselves. This, this is just a trap. That's all this is. But I love what it says in verse 10. And this is the... I told you I was going to read with comments. This is, this, is, this is too good for me not to comment on. In verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his home where his... Where he, <clears throat> excuse me. He went to his home where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to God, gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So what does Daniel do? Uh, I love this because here's another thing that emerges. Not in, and, and here's where I say, who dare to be Daniel, okay? 
But uh, Daniel hears about this law. He's not supposed to pray. He's not supposed to make appeal to heaven. He's only supposed to appeal to Darius. And Daniel, he hears about it. There's no mistaking here. This, this is not a situation where Daniel just didn't know and he made a mistake. Daniel heard about it. And what does Daniel do? He marches right back to his normal prayer location in front of an open window and prays. And they caught him, right? Then these men came by agreement and they found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They came by agreement. They must have been waiting. They're like, all right, guys, it's been signed. Let's go wait by the window. And they wait by the window. Yep, there he is. Sure enough, he's praying. We're going to go tell. These guys are, they're, I mean, do we ever grow up? Do we ever grow up? I don't, I don't know if we do. I read this and this is infuriating, and I really hope these guys get theirs. And they're, they're going to, by the way. But, uh, you know, they're not different than us. This is not different than the human nature we see on display every day out there in the world. I've seen this happen in the workplace where uh, someone is favored by uh, maybe, maybe someone in executive leadership over another. And those people are jealous of that person because they're favored by executive leadership. And so they set traps. And they love to run and tattle. Well, you know what they did. Or what they did. They play gotcha. You know, these are the snipers that are just waiting to catch you doing something wrong. And boom, they're going to jump on you. This happens. This rings true with life as I know it. But there they are. They catch him, and, and of course they go tattle. Verse 12, then they came near, and they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, <coughs> O king, should be cast into the den of lions? Then the king answered, and they didn't tell him about Daniel yet. The king says, uh, you know, basically, like, that's right, that's right, you know. The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes petition three times a day. Now, this next part is super interesting to me. Because Darius doesn't hear this news, get angry, and be like, oh, Daniel's going to pay. When Darius hears the news that Daniel has been violating this injunction, Darius is struck with the realization that he's got two choices. He's either got to go back on his word and show the whole kingdom that his injunction, that his law, that his instruction doesn't really count for anything. Or he's got to take Daniel, his favorite, and put him in the lion's den. The king did not want to put Daniel in the lion's den. But he was manipulated by power and manipulated by the reality that he'd made a law. And if he went back on that law, well, 
he would not be respected as a leader. So what does he do? Verse 14 says, The king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. So Darius is determined to not put Daniel in the lion's den. And he can't, but he can't figure out a way to do it. So he, he labors all day. Can you imagine? He's all day long frantically trying to figure out how to get out of this mess, how to get out of this situation. And they came back and they said, King, verse 15, these men come by agreement to the king. And they said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So they come to remind him. He's frantically trying to figure out a way to get Daniel off the hook. And they come and they remind him, Look, hey, no law can be changed once it's signed. You're trapped. So they, they kind of tricked this king into signing this rule, signing this law, that they know is Daniel, it's going to be Daniel's undoing. The king doesn't want it. Obviously, Daniel doesn't want it, but this group does. So Daniel, so, so the king, Darius, let me get my D's mixed up here. So the king, Darius, feels that he has no choice, and he does what a dictator would do. He goes ahead and throws Daniel. Verse 16, the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Uh, the king declared to Daniel, this is what the king says to Daniel when he goes in, though. He says, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. Now, here's this king that was just making a declaration in law that he's God, that he's the one that's going to be the deliverer, saying to Daniel, I hope your God delivers you. And a stone was brought, verse 17, and laid at the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, and nothing might be so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So they, they followed the letter of the law. They gave, they gave Daniel no special treatments. Then the king went to his place, his palace, the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. So the king sweating it all night. I think it's interesting that he says no diversions were brought to him. You know, he's experiencing all of this anxiety. And as a king, maybe they could have had musicians come. Maybe they could have had somebody come and entertain him in some way. He, he, he accepted no diversions and no entertainments. He's just sweating all night. He doesn't sleep. He's wringing his hands. Then at the break of day, verse 19, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out with a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Remember that? That's what the, that's what the satraps and all those people said earlier. O king, let, let, long live the king! You know, imagine, that's the first thing Daniel says. 
Maybe there was some sarcasm there, you know? I don't know. Maybe. Oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have also done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted his God. So, now, imagine this. Uh, this king, who just took power over the ruins of one society, is trying to establish his authority over that society, finds this great man, Daniel. Daniel, he must have been a great man. He must have been a great leader. He must have been good in leadership, good public speaker, whatever, I don't know. He must have been really good at what he did. And he finds out that Daniel serves this God. And this whole episode plays out. This situation gets used against Daniel. Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. Daniel does not get eaten. And he comes out. And what now is Darius's view of Daniel's God? Darius says this. Well, first of all, he commands, verse 24, that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. Yikes. So they got theirs. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones to pieces. These were hungry lions. There was a crunching sound. Then Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For, this, this is what Darius has to say about God. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And then verse 28 summarizes the whole episode of Darius saying, this is a yada 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 moment here, okay? So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, let's think about this for a second. Okay, first of all, I don't know if Darius became a true believer in the one true God or not. This is the only episode, we've, this is all we've got from him in history from a biblical perspective. And there are a few records uh, from an archaeological perspective, but we don't know a lot about what he did other than what is presented here. But I can say that uh, I don't like the fact that Darius is a dictator. I don't like the fact that Darius makes this law and then persecutes Daniel because of it. I don't like the way the ancient world works in a lot of ways. It's a messy place. But even in all of this messiness, with crunching bones and the death penalty, and lion, I mean, that's a brutal death penalty, lion's dance, and fiery furnaces, 
and all of those kinds of things. Out of this dictator comes the statement that his, God's kingdom will never be destroyed. Think about that. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So, another king brought into power. Another king brought to the point where he would say, God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. God's kingdom is the one that will not be shaken. Now, God's clearly the hero in this story, right? God's clearly the one that we're, we're supposed to walk away from this. And we're supposed to understand that God is not to be trifled with. C.S. Lewis would say of God, he's no tame lion. God is mighty. He is able to humble the powerful. He is able to bring down kingdoms. If we have any peace, if we have any prosperity, if we have any goodness in the world, it's because God has brought it about. And when things don't go well, and you get your cities sacked, and you get dragged off into captivity, God doesn't cease being on the throne then either. Imagine being a person living in this society where, first of all, your homeland had been destroyed, basically. These, 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 these are children that were from Judah that had been dragged off into Babylon, forced to become Babylonian citizens, forced to serve in the Babylonian government, forced to go to the Babylonian schools, forced to be subjected to all of this societal pressure to completely throw off their past and who they were. You want to talk about oppression. This, this is oppression. When, when you take a... The Babylonians were, were genius. I know that Darius is not but the Babylonian. But the, the Babylonians were genius because they would go into a society and when they would take it over, they didn't just take it over, set their governors in place, and then make the people follow their laws. They took the people and they drug them out of their homeland shipped them off to a different country, and then sent them to Babylonian school to Babylonianize them. They didn't commit a, an actual genocide where they just tried to wipe out a society. They, they engaged in a cultural genocide where they just took away their entire identity. And if you don't think it was effective, this is how effective it was. The Hebrew alphabet that, we, that like, they use today in Israel, the Hebrew alphabet in our Hebrew Bibles that we used to study, is not the original Hebrew alphabet. That alphabet came from Babylonian script. The ancient Hebrew alphabet that like Moses wrote in, it looked a lot different. 
Now, that doesn't mean that, that, that there's anything wrong with the Hebrew language today. And I'm, that's not a criticism. It's just a statement that the Babylonians were so effective in their ability to strip a society of their identity that they forever changed that language even. The book of Daniel, interestingly enough, is written in Babylonian. At least a big chunk of it is. For this section is. Demonstrating this very fact, I think. So these people were drug off, stripped of their cultural identity, forced to serve in this other kingdom. This kingdom falls. You got another dictator that comes in clamps down on everybody, tells them I'm the new boss in town, I'm the new God in town, you don't get to worship anybody but me. And yet, again, God brings that kingdom and that ruler to humility. If this is true of them, how much more of it is this true of us in Christ? There's a point. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm saying all this to get to a point. God was in control there. Those were dark days. You, it would be very easy to say, well, my nation has been destroyed. My culture has been destroyed. My family, I'm separated from my family. My language is being destroyed. Everything that I ever was is being wiped out. I guess God is just checked out. And yet, this book is written to remind us that in that dark hour, and don't kid yourselves, this is like the darkest hour in the history of Israel up to that, and Judah up to that point. This is as dark as it gets. In that dark hour, there's God on the throne. Now, I don't know what you're dealing with. Um... But at least it's not that, right? Um, you can't pay all your bills. Uh, your parents are terrible to you. M maybe you don't know your parents. Or maybe you do and wish you didn't. Uh, maybe your husband is awful. Or your wife is awful. Or maybe your kids don't talk to you anymore. Or maybe you wish your kids didn't talk to you anymore. Or maybe you have been abused. Or maybe you feel like your future has been robbed away from you. Or maybe you feel like you got a raw deal from society. Guess what? The throne of God, the kingdom of God, the reign of God has not flinched. God is still on his throne. And he is still working this thing out. Being a good guy or a good gal, keeping all the rules, doesn't mean you're going to have a problem-free life. Daniel kept all the rules and was a good guy. I mean... As much as we can say about a human that they're good guys, right? Daniel was a good guy. Even the satraps acknowledged, we're not going to find anything on Daniel. The only thing we're going to find on him is that he worships God. And that's, that's not a minus in my book, right? 
did being a good guy preserve Daniel from stress and problems in his life? Let me, let me help. No, it did not. <laughs> no, it did not. I mean, like, there's a happy ending here, right? The happy ending is he was not eaten by lions. But um, could you imagine the post-traumatic stress of ever having to smell a lion again when you were going to be fed to a lion? I hear stories of of a lot of folks I know that were deployed. And uh, they they don't hear fireworks on the 4th of July. They heard enough fireworks when they were deployed. They don't want to think about that. That, that's a horror show, that whole thing. You think it's different for Daniel? Somebody like that to have to endure this kind of deal? I'm nervous. My boss, like my boss's boss's boss, like the president of my company, the company I work for, uh, we, we happen to have some things in common uh, not related to work. So we end up we ended up having dinner together, like us and our wives. I was pretty nervous, okay? Because, I mean, you know, this is like a big deal. Imagine being Daniel, and here's a person that has power over your life and death. Literally. And it's just going to go on up and pray in the window like you normally would. Being a Christian, following God, does not mean that you're going to have a life of no suffering or no difficulty or no stress. And I like this is probably not the news that everybody wants to hear. And it would be a lot better salesmanship on my part if I were to say, if you follow Jesus, um, everything's going to be awesome all the time. But it would be a lie. You might get fed to lions. Your city may fall. You may be taken into captivity. But God remains. Our enemies and God's enemies still love to live in the worlds of technicalities. And they played all of the technicalities against Daniel. And they do it against us today. This is human nature. This is the way the world works. But guess what? God remains on the throne. There are no circumstances that God cannot overcome. Darius did not have an answer for this circumstance. Daniel did not have an answer for this circumstance. God had an answer for this circumstance. I'm not promising you that God is going to deliver you from the fiery furnace. He may not. I'm not going to promise that God will deliver you from the lion's mouth. He may not. He may not. And that doesn't make him an unkind or an unjust God. But he can. And don't think for a second he can. And I think most of us, if we're, if we're honest, we could, we, could, we could cite numerous occasions where he's delivered us. More than we can count, and certainly more than we deserve. <clears throat> we must obey God rather than men. We must fear God more than we fear men. So, one last thing. 
So we're probably not going to be fed to lions right now, I don't think. Um, I don't know. Society could change. You know, who knows? We're probably not going to go into a fiery furnace. More likely than not that, that we'll die of like heart disease or diabetes or cancer or something like that. It's most of us. There, there's a chance you could die a violent death, and who knows? Like I said, society could go at any time. But it's more likely than not that, that you won't go that way. But consider this. We're in a far worse pickle than Daniel was if we're not in Christ. Because here's the thing. The real problem in the world isn't dictators or cultural genocide or an unjust society. The real problem in the world is sin. And sin doesn't just affect people like Darius and the satraps. Sin affects you and me. And if we're honest, we probably identify more with the satraps and Darius than we do with Daniel in this story. That may not be true. But if, but if I'm really honest, I'm probably more like them than Daniel. And what I really deserve because of my sin, sin is just it's just not obeying God. You don't have to be a theologian to be a sinner. You don't even have to know that much about God to be a sinner. You already know enough. You know that you're not supposed to lie. You're not supposed to steal. You're not supposed to cheat. You're not supposed to uh, want things that other people have and get sick that they have things that you want. You're not supposed to look lustfully on somebody else's husband or somebody else's wife. You're not supposed to hate people without cause, and man, that's a deep well if you think about it. We're not supposed to do any of that stuff, but if we're honest, we've done all that stuff. In one way, shape, or form. Because of that, we deserve to be eaten by lions. And the Bible actually tells us that we have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible actually tells us that the payment for sin is death. And not just a temporary death, not just a, a, a death in relation to the body, but the payment for sin is eternal death. We have committed crimes against heaven. God has done something about that. God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to die in the place of sinners so that they won't die their sins. That's why Jesus came into the world. And I would just say to you, if you want to know this God, he came into the world in the person of Jesus so that he could be known. Let's pray.